Hello and welcome to the Bravo Outsider Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Midwinter, and with me as always is Mr. Community Property himself, Dylan Ferguson. How's it going? I prefer to go by Mr. Community Service. <laughs> uh, doing, doing just fine. Mug gang in the morning. We're doing a morning yeah. recording. And, uh, but we were, we were eating good this week. There were some good shows this week. I'm pretty oh, stoked about yeah. this one. Yeah, it was fantastic. And it was, uh, mm. it was tough for me to follow because it was the uh, Big Brother Canada, which I'm a huge fan of, finale week. There was a two-hour finale and just, you know, trying to cram in all of the content that I, like, wanted to watch after the kids went down. It was it was really challenging. So I was up pretty late last night making sure that I was all, all caught up. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, each week we bring on someone who doesn't follow Bravo to get their takes. This week's guest you might know from the Hunks podcast. It's Rory Fallis. <laughs> may be rough around the edges but baby so are diamonds <laughs> nice. nice the use of the word baby in there is what really sells it <laughs> um i'm not sure who that is who that is oh, that might have stopped, stopped me them. That, um, stopped them wow that's rare that's first I'm time gonna, i'm gonna guess it's it sounds like it might be a lisa vanderpump but yeah i don't know no, who, who it is it Mo- monique samuels Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a that's a good tagline. Wow, yeah, it wasn't bad. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, super pumped to have you on the show. Uh, we usually start off just by getting our guests like previous experience with reality TV, um, and just you know let us know what shows you've watched and what kind of comes to mind or prior to watching these shows. What kind of came to mind when you thought of Real Housewives? Uh, yeah, my previous experience with reality TV, like I hadn't watched any reality TV since man, like season two of survivor or, you know, big brother season one, like early, early two thousands reality TV. And then recently the last couple months, just doing a hard deep dive on RuPaul's drag race. So, so really cramming in drag race uh a lot um which is a bit different that's more of more of a game show than uh than full reality like it hits some of the some of the same stuff you know like the the drama and stuff is there but it's yeah. it's more about the the contest in the end yeah I yeah like that's kind of yeah halfway between competition reality tv and soap opera reality tv totally yeah 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 it, it strikes a really like really good balance between like you said the two uh core genres of competition and and soap opera Mm -hmm. um yeah love drag race um so we're we've been starting the show off by getting into a bit of a round table discussion so uh each week i will put out a theme to just generate some general discussion about the concept uh, as it pertains to reality television, um, this week uh, Dylan suggested this uh, this idea of authorship and and mm-hmm. how that relates to reality TV. Um, Dylan, since you suggested this topic, I, I thought you'd be the best person to sort of lead off that discussion. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of authorship in reality TV. Like, I was. I would have liked to bring it up anyways, uh, regardless of current events, just because I think it's really interesting to look at reality TV as a, as an art form that's at least generally seen to like not have an author to just be something that's created by a team and not like have like one 
uh, visionary guiding voice behind it. But then it's kind of got um, uh, it, there's different weight to the subject now because there's a writer strike going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, like uh, in our previous episode, actually, Comrade Britt brought this up, uh, kind of jumping the gun a little bit about how uh, there is a complex relationship between reality TV and writer strikes because the genre really. Uh, blossomed in the 2007 writer's strike when uh, it was used, these shows were used as a substitute for scripted TV uh, mm-hmm. while the writers were on strike. So they're almost used as like scab shows. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and that really uh, helped reality TV take off, but uh, it, it left it with that kind of tarnished reputation as both like cheap authorless content and also like almost as anti-labor content because it was, <laughs> uh, it was used as a, uh, as something to break a strike with um but uh just the idea of uh, of authorship i think gets uh thrown into question in an interesting way uh in reality tv uh, i would like to like really quickly introduce like a dollop of of critical theory into the the discussion really quickly uh yeah. <laughs> but the, like uh, just the idea of a uh, death of the author which is probably mm-hmm. a, a term you guys know but uh um maybe you know, people have, have heard, but uh, don't really know what it means too much, which is the idea that uh, we get from an essay by um, Roland Barthes in uh, 1967, I think, where uh, Barthes uh, presents the proper modern way to him of reading an artwork uh, in contrast to the traditional way of reading an artwork, which is about trying to uncover the true meaning uh, the true meaning being what the author's intention was. Mm. And Bart says to the author, no, eat my shorts. I don't care about your true intention. <laughs> uh, the truth of a work of art isn't found at its point of origin. It's found at its destination. It's the relationship between uh, the viewer and the work of art that creates the meaning. And uh, whatever the author might have intent- intended is completely irrelevant. The authors are racing themselves uh, when they make a work of art. And I think that's, had a huge impact on the way that uh, people view art since uh, in the, the, you know, the 50 odd years uh, since. And what's interesting about reality TV is we have a form that's, you don't have to kind of try to pretend there's no author to look at it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Or maybe you do. That's what's I think interesting about it. Like, are we just ignoring the existence of the people actually making the show? Or is it really a, a form that's almost like, Roland Barthes perfect art form that doesn't have a guiding creative voice behind it, uh, that you can just engage with the different layers and the different meanings in the sense of like pure interpretation without having to even try to ignore a person who created it because there isn't, uh, there isn't uh, someone behind the Emerald curtain. That's, uh, that's like pulling the levers. There isn't one singular person anyways. Um, and I think, Going back to the 2007 writer strike, I think one of the impacts of it too was also a stronger bifurcation in television where you got it divided into like what's generally seen as like lower class and upper class TV mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. prestige TV just became like more of a thing. Mm-hmm. And these shows were seen as like very like authored shows. And like, there's kind of the rise of the celebrity showrunner after that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, whether you're talking about like David Chase or Shonda Rhimes or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it, but then at the other end, uh, more and more reality TV content, which really took off again as kind of a strike breaking measure, ended up getting segregated into this kind of uh, authorless 
viewed as lower class, more disreputable category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like you're absolutely right. And that was the first thing that came to mind when you brought up this this topic was the the fact that in like film and prestige television, um, the the production like tradecraft, I think, gets lost or the attribution of it gets gets lost um, in those mediums in a way that it doesn't really in reality TV because you're forced to. You don't you don't have like uh, a marquee director or showrunner or mm-hmm. writer that you can attribute you know the the talent of a cinematographer or editor to um, you you have to look at those things take them on face value and be like oh wow I can see the hand of the editor here I can see the hand mm-hmm. of the producer here constructing these situations and um, driving the story in in ways that. Um, would otherwise be attributed to, you know, whoever the marquee name is that is associated with, you know, um, you know, this piece of work being their, um, their work. Yeah. Yeah. And, but the thing that's interesting to me, especially now that, uh, we're back into a writer's strike and we have to think about these things, um, is that normally my instinct would be to really celebrate, uh, reality TV, for appearing authorless because i really like uh, the death of the author idea that it i think it really really frees the viewer up to uh to engage with uh with art in a much more dynamic way than they would if they felt like they had to think about uh, original intentions uh but it kind of gets concretized at a moment like this uh when you have to think about the real people behind it and then i start to wonder well are we looking at it as a form with no author because we've been trained to see the people making these shows as an exploitable class, unlike the uh, unionized writers who make scripted content, uh, right. which, um, and this is again, a point that, uh, that Brit made the previous episode that there's a, a lot of uh, union work behind scripted TV and very, very little union work behind reality TV. And uh, if we really embrace the idea of it being something without authors are we just playing into the game of uh of continuing to exploit the actual creative talented people behind these shows Mm -hmm. yeah i think like reality tv has a very like uh, it is just by nature very exploitative like we are (laughs) exploiting people's like personality disorders by watching and enjoying these shows um so i i think there's already at least you have to um, you have to accept, you have to be ignorant or accept having some blood on your hands while you're watching these. Like, this is, <laughs> sure. it is like a, a blood sport. Um, yeah. but, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, it's force, it forces this idea of death of an author, which I think is actually something that reduces the barrier of entry to like consuming art and engaging with art because I think if you are taking the approach where you're trying to like um, deduce a artist's uh, true like intentions behind their work um, that to do that effectively, it requires a lot of like education and context, which mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the working class typically has not had. Um, and I think that, you know, by allowing people to, 
kind of project their own experiences and um, really dive into how they relate to the material. Um, that's way more accessible and, and it opens up art to um, to the masses and like engaging with art is a very like valuable thing for just part of the human experience. And so making mm-hmm. it easier for people to do that and not associating like any sort of like shame or like a right or wrong to mm-hmm. how people interpret that. Uh, I think that's very valuable. And I think that, you know, especially when we've got this movement of prestige TV, which is like creating a lot of like fantastic television, um, there is a sort of el- elitistness that is associated mm-hmm. with, with that. And, yeah. you know, if you don't like, um, I don't even know what the, the hottest prestige TV show is. Succession. Right succession. Yeah. Sure, so yeah. if you don't appreciate succession, like, mm-hmm. you know, just yeah. gonna <laughs> yeah. turn, turn my nose up to you. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and it's funny too. Cause it's like, especially watching some aspects of some of these shows, like the family drama, the family dynamics that they're playing out in um, like real housewives of New Jersey is like, they're hitting a lot of the same beats as succession. It's just, you know, it's just done in a different way. And you're not, you're not thinking about it in terms of like, Oh, how is this playing back to, you know, what happened seasons before? It's just raw. And like, they're just expressing exactly what they're feeling in that moment. Or, you know what I mean? Like they're obviously heightened for the fact everyone, no one's not aware that they're on TV. Right. But you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Another thing that I had like kind of, noted that I thought was interesting. And I think there is a distinction between like authorship and, and attribution, but mm-hmm. there is this like human need to try to attribute things to people. So even mm-hmm. on a medium that is authorless, um, the, the fans do seek out to kind of like find someone that they can attribute the work to. And I think like on Bravo shows, that's typically like Andy Cohen kind of fills that role as being like this like godfather of real housewives and all like Bravo reality TV content, Um, which I I find like really interesting because yeah, like it is, it is authorless (laughs) and he probably has some say in terms of like, you know, at a high executive level, but certainly not in a way that would uh, influence like the storytelling notes, like down to, you know, the, the nuances of the edit that. Mm -hmm. um, So it's, it's not like a strong attribution. Like, you know, I don't think people see Andy Cohen as an author, but they do like look to someone to like, um, to herald for mm-hmm. you know sure. the successes sure. um, and, and he's put himself in that position to kind of be that guy right just by being yeah. such a public uh facing persona um he's i feel like he's kind of he puts himself forward as like i i will be the face of the people behind the show mm-hmm. yeah and not not that it that's entirely like selfless but um part of that probably is seeing the need to have some sort of mm-hmm. like like coalescing uh, entity for the fans to really rally around. Because I think like, yes, as a work of art or a cultural work, uh, Real Housewives and other reality, Bravo reality shows are a very like uh, strong entity. But one thing that I don't think gets 
talked about a lot is like it has a very like fervent and active and rabid and engaged fan base that I don't think people think of. Like if you think of like strong fandoms of like works of art, you think like, you know, Trekkies, you think Star Mm -hmm. Wars, you think Marvel, but Bravo is huge. Like there's a huge segment of the population that engages with these very, very like actively and, and, and rabidly. Um, that is just, you know, that has been built partly because, you know, Andy Cohen has become this figurehead for, um, for being the author of these, these works. Mm hmm. It, I mean, it feels to me, and uh, like this is coming out, you know, from being the outsider, but um, it seems more like a guiding uh, and not one voice, but like, you know, through the edits, through the story producers asking the questions, like it's guiding the story, but it doesn't feel like there's hard decisions being made ahead of time or anything like that. Like it guides the story. Mm-hmm. by necessity not by authorship in that way yeah i think like a lot of the storytelling that um you know production has is it's very like reactive like mm-hmm. they're reacting to circumstances and trying to you know figure out ways to uh position the story uh to move forward in a mm-hmm. direction that it is interesting or dynamic or kind of does what they want um they'll at times you can see a more heavy hand of them, you know, introducing information in a way that is, you know, kind of obviously producers. Like if they bring on a psychic or a life coach is one that, that we saw like introduced. I don't think that that was like, there was any narrative value in what we saw in real housewives of Atlanta in this case. But as soon as the life coach came on, I was like, Oh, they are seeding a storyline. Yeah. Sure. Or like, let's all play a game. The game's called everybody insults each other. Yeah. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I think um, if you're trying to find like somebody behind the camera who's really responsible for uh, for creating a lot of the things we love about the show, um, one thing that's interesting about reality TV is is a lot of that is going to end up in the editing room too. It, instead of it being a mm-hmm. medium that's created in the writers' room or created on on set uh, by a director, um, a lot of the, the narratives are clearly being excavated from the edit. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it, it's almost a bit of an an editor as author medium in that sense too, or you could at least look at it that way. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, I think it just goes back to documentary film too, where it's mm-hmm. it's you know created, like you said, written in the editing room. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think like you know when we think about um, about authorship and we think about you know uh, Bravo reality shows in in broad strokes the first thing that comes to mind is like stories because there's really you know dynamic big stories but one thing that will sometimes get lost is like uh any like good piece of narrative has very strong characters and you know the strengths of a lot of these shows are also built on the back of great casting and great personalities that Mm -hmm. you know they they build their characters. They like take pieces of themselves and exaggerate them and like look for archetypes to, to, to fit into the story and kind of um, to navigate the social situations. And then they know when a good time to break those, those molds are. And um, they just, you know, a really great housewife or 
uh, cast member on Vanderpump Rules. They have a keen instinct for when is a good time to like hold on to information, like retain it, and when's a good time to use it, how it should be dis- dispersed, like, and like having a little bit of foresight if they are, you know, kind of filling a strategic role, having the foresight to know if I tell this person, this is how it's going to move around through this, this circle. Um, so I think that there's like a lot of credit does need to be, you know, put on the cast as well for, for sure. being, mm-hmm. being authors. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel that that's uh, instinct that is learned after years of being a part of this medium? Or is that something that's innate to those cast members? Um, I, I think it's it's both. In in some cases, there's people that just like naturally have the the ability to do that. That's just like part of their character. I think some of it comes like learned from watching these shows ahead of right. time and kind of seeing how they work. And uh, one thing that is like really interesting to see is when you've got a season where you've got a new cast member or multiple new cast members, especially on like Real Housewives, watching them learn it. Because Mm -hmm. I think that's been one of the interesting things about Real Housewives of New Jersey this season. We've got two brand new uh, housewives that are trying to learn the ropes. And I think one is like just hit the ground running and like immediately seemed like a seasoned vet. And the other is like fumbling a bit more. Um, Sometimes it'll take someone like two seasons to get it. Usually they won't get like a third season if they're really not engaging, but um, yeah, I think like it, it varies from person to person in terms of how quickly they will kind of pick up on the game. Mm-hmm. Who who are the new ones on New Jersey? I can't even pick it out. Yes, uh, yeah. Oh, oh wow. Um, now I have to remember names. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's always the hard part. First <laughs> um, oh, what was the name? The the woman in the first scene with her mom, Marge Senior, and the two twin moms. Oh, what, what okay. Was, what was her uh, name? Yeah, was Jen Fessler. Jen Fessler. Um, yeah, so she she is new, but she's not okay. a full blown cast member. She's oh, okay. a like friend of. Yeah. Um, so there's there's tiers to the casts. So okay. there's um, housewives, which is kind of your your main like character, and then there's friend of, which is like a heightened guest role. Okay. And that like the friend can be like almost a full blown housewife. Sure. It yeah. kind of depends, but um often they just won't get their like personal outside of the like friend circle highlighted, but they can mm-hmm. have a very active role in storytelling. And then there's like the guest, which is uh, like one or two appearances in, in a season. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh I I don't know who the other one is. I have no idea. So uh Danielle was is, is a new one. Oh, okay. Um, she has like hit the ground running, yeah. in my opinion. And mm-hmm. Rachel Fuda, who I think is actually at the beginning of the season, I was like, Oh, I you know, I don't know. I don't I think she's gonna be a one season wonder, but uh she's grown on me in terms of like her ability to um to operate within the housewife uh sphere. So um, Wow. I'm shocked that Rachel is new. Having watched this episode, she seems to be like have a fully fleshed out storyline. Yeah, the, this episode and the previous one, they've really been building her story more than the, yeah. that they had until this point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you guys have any other thoughts on authorship? No, I think I think that's enough critical theory for one yeah. rabble uh, <laughs> podcast. Okay, I had I had a couple more points, but go, I, go, go, yeah. 
Um, Don't let me hold no, I, I think we've got a lot to get through. Um, the one thing that I did want to bring up, though, was these books that Housewives write, like, that oh, are undoubtedly okay. uh, ghostwritten by, yeah. by someone. Come on, let's, Always go. let's make... go. Give me some titles. <laughs> well, I want to hear more. <laughs> um, well, okay, so... Given the shows that we have watched, Rory, who do you mm. think would be uh, a New York Times bestseller? Of, uh, oh, God. Of- <laughs> uh, Lisa Vanderpump. Um, okay. I'm not sure if Lisa is. Really? Um, man, past that, it's honestly a crapshoot. I'd just be like <laughs> firing shots into the air hoping to hit something. I have yeah. no idea. Uh, Teresa Judice is like a multiple-time New York Times bestseller. <laughs> wow. Which is like, obviously she didn't write these books. Like yeah. she is... What? <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm returning all these editions. All these signed editions I've got back here. <laughs> but yeah, like these are extensions of of their character i think right. that like you know they still have a hand in in shaping these and mm-hmm. um i think that that it goes again maybe this speaks a bit more to fandom than actual authorship uh but that these are kind of tools that are used by um by the housewives to further their characters and engage with fans and build their backstory and um i do think you know if you're looking, I think there's kind of two ways that you can look at at authorship or two like levels. You can look at authorship of like the show or maybe even down to an episode level, but mm-hmm. then a more broad like sense of authorship of, you know, the world, like a world builder. Um, and these housewives are definitely very active in the like the world building because they're creating, you know, supplemental works like right. these these books and also They're all the, George's Lucas's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're, they're creating books and they're creating like music to kind of like build and fill this, this world. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I do think that we do need to attribute maybe more authorship to these housewives or the cast members sure, than, yeah. than yeah. we do. Well, yeah. and that that's raise like makes me remember something too. Like how much of the drama on Atlanta specifically took place in the social media sphere that they're referencing. That it's just oh, yeah. like they are authoring this drama between seasons, where it's like they're giving themselves storylines and conflict to run, hit the ground running in the first episode. That yeah. you know they're they're creating outside of even being on this sh- on this show. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And like one of the things that you you'll hear from various housewives is what you don't realize is that there's there's really there's like three seasons of housewives. Like there's are three phases to a season. Yeah. There's while you're while you're shooting the season and mm-hmm. engaging in the drama and then there's when it's airing and it's playing back and you're engaging with it on social media with with the fan base and firing shots at each other. Um, and then there's also, you know, the lull, the lead up to a new season when, you know, everyone's getting kind of ramped up and like firing shots to sort of seed the storylines for the next mm-hmm. season. So are you telling me that Give Them Lala isn't the New York Times bestseller? Oh, you know what? It it actually it probably is. Better um, be. I've bought enough copies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I, I guess the New York Times 
publishers know how to game the New York Times bestseller. And so what they'll do is they'll do like bulk orders of the book, like the publishers themselves will buy enough books to make up the gap between, you know, what they think it's going to be distributed as and what it takes to get on the best bestsellers list list. So I think like there's a lot of authors, not just like on reality TV, but, um, that will use this system and like basically pay to be a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, oh, sure. I mean, you, you go to like an airport and look at the books that you're selling and you're like, how are every single one of you a New York Times bestseller? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Well, we have a ton to cover, so I wanted to jump right in. Um, let's, yeah. let's hop into Vanderpump Rules because um, that has been the hot show this season. Uh, Rory, what were your first impressions of this cast of characters? Well, I mean, going into it, I genuinely like my preconceived notion of it was like, I think they're a family. I don't, I'm trying to like <laughs> suss, suss out who's, who is whose kids. Um, but I, I, I guess I realized that that's not the case. They all used to work at her restaurant, right? Like yeah. everyone kind of started working at, at Lisa's restaurant and then split off in their own directions. Um, I felt like, uh, it, I, I found Lisa's role so interesting. This like removed matriarch that just kind of comments on people's dynamics from a distance was so unique. I felt in, in, in reality shows that it's like that, especially to be the, the marquee name of the show and not personally engaged in the drama at all was so interesting like that almost seemed like more of a manufactured storyline to me but uh, yeah but i don't know if that's you know her doing or just the structure of the show i don't know yeah it's interesting because like this show is in its 10th season so Mm -hmm. when this all started they were actual employees that were grinding it out at at her restaurant and there's been like a power dynamic like inversion because now all these people have become the star and no longer rely on her to as great an extent i guess Mm -hmm. her and ken do serve as executive producers so if they don't want someone on there they could cut them but yeah um it's not the same dynamic that you see on screen anymore but mm. she has kind of evolved into this like Don Corleone, like <laughs> yeah, right. uh, Godfather. Especially, yeah, in this episode, especially, you can see at the end, everybody's clamoring to kiss her ring. Yeah, oh, yeah. Totally. even yeah. like when James and Allie are talking early, and like, I'm going to introduce you to Lisa. And like, Allie has like been around Lisa before, but hasn't had this like this meeting with Lisa that we have seen happen throughout the seasons where, you know, uh, cast members will bring on their new partners to like to meet Lisa formally. And it's mm-hmm. a very like Godfather style sit down. Um, <laughs> we didn't get the same like formality that we have seen in the past, but it was still like James is like, OK, well, we need to do this because I think that this this uh, party scene at the end, it was definitely positioned as being like the finale for yeah. Uh, yeah. the season. Um, so the fact that Ali has, you know, kind of been around this full season and hasn't had this Godfather moment with, with Lisa, I think he's like, Oh, I'm on the way to the airport. I like, 
pack my pack my toothpaste, pack my toothbrush. Oh, Godfather, sit down with Lisa Vanderpump and Al. You got to get all those things done before I leave out of town. <laughs> James is like nervous about it too. He's like uh, he he he's really seeing the importance of it because I think he wants. Uh, he wants Allie to be, uh, well, to be his his bride, I guess. Eventually, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I think he's, he's nervous about introducing her to Lisa, and then when Lisa meets her, Lisa is basically like, "And remember, Allie, you have to be his mother and his babysitter and take care of him and do and, and do everything for him. He's a small baby, and it's your job to to control his life." It's <laughs> oh man! And J- James's testimonial where he talks about how he doesn't have trauma is so funny (laughs) (laughs) everyone tells me i have trauma and i i don't though (laughs) Uh, yeah he had he had some like really great moments in this i uh i also appreciated like oh whenever you see someone in therapy on movies they never have their life together (laughs) (laughs) Look at your life and then look at my life. Tell me who needs therapy. (laughs) We've been looking, James. We've seen a lot. (laughs) No, go ahead. I was just going to say I loved some of the shady edits on like the flyer of his uh, his thing, like where it was like (laughs) the headliners and then way yeah, out of the bottom it's like him. my name right there next to cascade yeah. <laughs> show it like 18 rows below yeah. cascade tiny tiny font. yeah like four point font <laughs> it's, it's like that episode where uh the simpsons where like bart tries to make out his name on the end credits it's like uh, does that say jane cromwell <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's interesting what, how um you you mentioned that like lisa is kind of hovering above and not involving herself in the drama because i think she definitely like cultivates that uh that look but mm-hmm. i think she gets more involved in the drama than she wants you to think i think a classic example was the previous episode where he had ken toddle out and drop yeah. a bomb <laughs> and I, I i think the, the 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 reading the correct reading now i didn't identify it at the time is just that lisa wanted to introduce this information she had to the show so just told ken you say it because I don't want to be seen as the person who is getting right. my hands dirty and, and, and messing things up, you know, like, yeah, I, I think I, it I, wasn't so much that she wanted to introduce it to the show. She wanted it to be introduced to Katie on the show without right. getting her but, hands, but like, she didn't want to be the one clean. doing it. Yeah. She wanted to pretend she still had that prime directive. Like I'm not going <laughs> to fuck around things. So she just tells Ken to spit on a line. And, and that, that explains why <laughs> he immediately afterwards is like, all right, come here, dog. Let's shuffle out. My work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's interesting lisa vanderpump's like role and how it has kind of like evolved on this show and uh so she's a former real housewife of beverly hills and this was a spinoff of that show um and she's operating as like this in this puppet master role on this show in a way that she was like very much trying to do on real housewives of of beverly hills Mm -hmm. um and this is kind of a a bit of a contrast because there is still like a power dynamic that she has with the rest of the cast since she serves as executive producer she's able to just freely operate as as a puppet master whereas on real housewives of beverly hills uh everyone was was her peers so Mm -hmm. like you know she had friction and like pushback against her trying to do those things um if she wasn't 
particularly like effective and um, sneaky about it. Like this, uh, this like Ken coming out and like introducing information that would never fly on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Someone would like call that out. Right. 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 Yeah. Katie's not going to say, did you put Ken up to this? No, nobody's going <laughs> to, nobody's going to question her on this show. They're all our children. What uh, if, any what, other, any what other if, characters stand out to you? Oh, the Tom Schwartz. I mean, the two Toms together, I like their dynamic quite a bit. Like, because I, I cannot get a read on how old these dudes are. Like, I assume they're late 30s, but yeah. like, based on their behaviors, I'm like, are they 22? Like, you know what I mean? Like, they're like Tom Schwartz's edit of hiding behind the plants and then awesome. like sad, so goofy dummy outside after yelling, like being involved in this fight with his ex-wife and current not girlfriend outside and then just sitting there whistling is yeah. so funny I'm like Hilarious. this is <laughs> like yeah couldn't couldn't tell how old that dude was yeah Tom Schwartz second. definitely seems like he froze his personality at age 20 yeah totally and now he's like 40 years old and, and yeah, still I, acting I would say 14 like yeah he's still fair try, enough, fair trying enough. to use that puppy dog way of getting out of things and not taking accountability yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah this like hiding behind the ferns was like really fun <laughs> I loved how as this escalated like prior to and everyone could hear the noise coming from this area. Yeah. Uh, we just got a very quick sh like shot where we hear someone say, oh, Schwartz, you should probably get in there. And he's like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and then uh, other Tom Sandoval, Tom Sandoval. Is yeah. that his name? Yeah. Yeah. His uh, like, oh, man, talking about the. The only reason they have batteries and pens in yeah. the drawers is because he goes and buys them. <laughs> so great. Like he's out every day buying pens. <laughs> he's he's talking about his like long term relationship, like just the frustrated older coworker in the office. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I'm the only one who bricks up pens. <laughs> okay, dude. <It's> like... <laughs> I make dumpling lattes in the break room in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah though though the two toms were the standouts for me and their dynamics with their partners and ex-partners was the was the focal point for me for sure oh yeah. yeah uh what what highlights did you have from from watching this or uh what what stood out to you the i mean oh, man the the cliffhanger at the end it's not even a cliffhanger because it's just like the the preview of the next episode for sure was like, man, they, they know what they're doing. Cause I'm like, I might have to watch next week and see <laughs> what the hell's going on here. This is a real curveball. Um, but the, uh, uh, yeah, the, the relationship between the two Toms and their, their partners and exes was, was definitely the most gripping. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, James was was an interesting character, but not. I don't think his storyline grabbed me enough to to really care where it's going. Especially given that this is, like you said, supposed to be the season finale. I'm like, okay, seems kind of like a wah wah end to yeah. his uh, his whatever his arc was this season. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you bring up the you know the the teaser at the end of mm -hmm. this. Um, so some context on this, this season was like wrapped, production was wrapped on it. 
Uh, and then uh, this scandal broke out that uh, Tom Sandoval had actually been sleeping with Raquel for yeah. like months and months and months. And so they brought production back into gear to like kind of capture the fallout. So this definitely was like the the season finale as it stood at the end of, you know, shooting the, the season. But then this next episode that we get is kind of the, the fallout for this mm-hmm. scandal breaking. Um, so, yeah, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how how that in particular plays out, because I think that, you know, it's been the source of a lot of the way that a lot of people are reading into this season. And, how could it uh, not be? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's. um <clears throat> Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting watching. Like, I, I wonder how much they changed the edit of some of these episodes with that information. You know what I mean? Because like, the material is there, but they're they're really focused on Schwartz and Raquel. But I think they're seeding. That's why they're seeding Sandoval and Ariana's relationship more as like a like cross threading them to to yeah. really play that contrast up. And I wonder how much of that was there before this information, right? Yeah, I think at least the last two or three episodes, they definitely went into the edit and like made sure that they could like highlight this story. But mm-hmm. prior to that, it was a, um, you know, this like coming of age story of Raquel was the, the path of the season. So it has been a really interesting pivot to see her like, you know, it was kind of like the arc of the season was like, oh, uh, Raquel's trying to figure out who she is, like, um, you know, who she actually is after aging out of pageants and mm-hmm. after exiting this relationship with with James. And to now have this answer to the question of, you know, her being this, you know, manipulative villain mm-hmm. is very, very unexpected, even by like a lot of reality TV standards. Yeah, well, I mean, she had such a villain edit in this episode. Like, it's it's almost heavy-handed, the villain edit, where it's like, what are you doing, Raquel? Because I had no idea the controversy and the, and the scandal that was to come at the end of the episode. So it was just, like, crazy what a villain edit and seemingly, like, self-motivated, where she's inserting herself into Katie and Schwartz's dynamic, that it's just like, why are you doing this? You look terrible. Yeah. And this episode in particular, like, is where they, I think it's probably the first time where I was like, okay, they are specifically painting her as as a villain. Mm-hmm. And I thought that we got a really great moment at the beginning that was fan service to the people that have been following this, this scandal. Because one, like, item that you think of when you think of the the Scandoval is mm-hmm. these lightning bolt necklaces that yeah. uh, that Tom Sandoval has and Raquel have that is supposed to represent their their love for each other and we see her buy this necklace and we see her like put it around her neck and it was very much like okay put the hood on and now this begins my villain edit and it was oh, yeah. really interesting to me it was very much like a marvel movie moment like oh yeah. hey fans there's this the special item that helps <laughs> yeah. them complete their transformation you know it from the extended universe <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh dylan what sort of highlights did you have um 
my favorite part was that we get to to see Tom Sandoval and Ariana's relationship a bit more. You know, these are the kind of things I really keep coming back to this show for. As fun as the cheating on each other is and shouting at each other is, uh, the real meat of Vanderpump Rules uh, for me has always been watching the relationships mature and sour. And uh, I really like the conversation between uh, Sandoval and Ariana as like just uh, an example of like a, a later stage relationship talk where it's like just been stagnant for a while and mm. uh, where they've just kind of, as Schwartz, I think, correctly points out, have become roommates at this point. Yeah. Um, but um, it's it's interesting how that because they've been together for so long, they are actually like really good at talking to each other mm-hmm. and yeah. really bad at influencing each other in any way. Yeah. Um, and uh, I feel like at, in a young relationship, at the start of a relationship, you can like have so much impact on the other person with like an inarticulate grunt. Like you mm-hmm. can suck at talking to each other. <laughs> but still like really influence each other. And then you get to this later stage and you, you can't, you can't really do anything about it, but you're really good at talking about everything. Yeah. You know, you get really good at knowing how to, how to describe everything to each other, but, uh, but unable to like find a door that'll lead to like something better. And uh, just the, the, the attempts to try to put into words what it is you want. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh ariana's great line about like you know we used to listen to the war on drugs and do the dishes together yeah <laughs> like you know, that's that kind of hyper specific like long-term relationship detail that like really sells it for me for sure yeah yeah well and then they're they're um such wildly divergent what what they what their versions of quality time are oh, yeah, like yeah. such <laughs> polar opposites like couldn't be further from <laughs> from each other in that way yeah because because sandoval they're asked they put the question to him but he says like do mushrooms and watch the sunrise yeah, yeah. go hang gliding <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's quality time hang gliding <laughs> I but, like that like, things have gotten so bad that like Tom <laughs> thinks that Ariana doesn't realize that he likes Beyonce. Like that yeah, was one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that. It's like, yeah, we, do, we don't even listen to the same music together anymore. Are you implying I don't like Beyonce? <laughs> <laughs> also, like doing mushrooms and watching the sunrise sounds awesome. Doing yeah, mushrooms really and watching does. the sunrise with Tom Sandoval sounds terrible. <laughs> Can you imagine how annoying he'd be? You would just be like taking his shirt off and doing <laughs> karate kicks and saying dude 16 times per second <laughs> but that was uh that, that was a nice scene i thought and i did like like that uh and then also um um almost a bit of a follow-up to that the uh, the loaded conversation that uh that arietta has with raquel later on where um mm-hmm um which is like kind of supportive despite raquel's obvious uh uh secret intentions behind it and her like leading questions at the start about like how the relationship's going uh and that that was kind of emotionally charged too similar to the way so we got some scenes between uh, raquel and ariadne in the previous episode when they were glamping together that uh that the, the tension between the different emotions there i thought was really was really rich too uh, and um, it's good to see Ariana a bit more as a, as a person because we haven't seen a ton of her so far this season. And you know, obviously, she's, she's been having a 
a tough year, which I'm sure it's going to get better any day now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, it's good to see uh, to see some of her perspective too. Um, and uh, and yeah, we we we've had some stuff in earlier seasons about how she has like some uh, some uh, uh, body issues. You know, she had like a bad relationship at one point. She's talked about in the past. So, so to have that uh, kind of become part of the conversation helps us uh, see her uh, her humanity a little bit more, which is a uh, important to uh to keep in mind i think um because i think there's a lot of people like especially online who have gotten so into just making it about hating raquel or whatever that uh that they've kind of lost lost sight of like what if if you're going to be mad what you should be mad about which is just Mm -hmm. like hurting ariana's feelings i guess yeah um but um there's some good uh some good human stuff here and uh uh, and some good ridiculous outfits from Tom Sandoval too, which oh, I always yeah. like. <laughs> I like the one where he's dressed like a like a twelve year old girl in the nineties, wearing like a no fear shirt with like, <laughs> like a candy colored charm necklace on, and, uh, <laughs> and, and he has to explain away the coffee stain on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then in, in the last scene, he's wearing a shirt that looks like a cubicle from the nineties too. <laughs> Just he looks very he looks like the nineties in this episode. So. I like his strong fashion choices. They're often hideous, <laughs> but I like his I like his courage with those. He at least stands for something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's about it. And, and also just like starting to feel worse and worse for Ken every time we see him too. <laughs> Poor Ken. Poor guy. He's he's been on like one percent in airplane mode for a while now. He's he's run another juice, this guy. And I'm just, I'm just starting to feel bad for him. <laughs> Um, the only thing that we haven't talked about yet that I really want to get to, because I think I've brought up how compelling I find this to be this season is, uh, Katie's story kind of the, the, um, it doesn't come to a conclusion, but I think it comes to a uh, crescendo here. Uh, Mm -hmm. it was really interesting to see how she finally felt like she had an excuse to use Raquel as an object to vent against. Like Mm -hmm. Raquel, I don't think knew that she was, you know, giving her a reason to um, open up the, the valve that has been containing hurricane Katie. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) But it was, it was awesome to see just how much, like how much of that anger that she had at Tom Schwartz, just outlet against Raquel. Mm-hmm. And she's been just waiting for an opportunity to do this. And I think like Schwartz is not a, like a super smart guy, I don't think. <laughs> but he was smart enough and he had been with Katie long enough to know like, you know, I'm not going to go over there because this like this is anger towards me that, mm-hmm. you know, Raquel can like take this. Um, and now kind of reading in the like the scandal of it all into this scene i think that uh tom schwartz was being used as a shield for tom sandoval and raquel's relationship like he obviously knew about it and was being positioned as raquel's interest in order to shield like speculation on tom sandoval and i I'm maybe reading some subtext into it where it's not or some motivation into it where there's, there's not, but 
Schwartz being like, well, I'm being like, I'm playing a shield for you. You can play a shield for me right now. You can just like take mm. all this fire from Katie, um, you know, and then, you know, we're square. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good read. I think that makes sense to me. Um, and uh, I think that uh, Tom Schwartz's uh, shameless attempts to butter up Terry, Katie's mom, yeah. <laughs> uh, to try to soften Katie through his mom. They, uh, I mean, they, they do work for him, but they backfire on Raquel. Yeah, because yeah. then later on, when Terry's backing up Katie, she's saying to Raquel, "Like Katie and Tommy still love each other," yeah. which is which is not the point Katie was trying to make. Yeah. But that's what that's what Terry comes out with because because Tom Schwartz was just basically like being like, "I love you, Terry. You're the best." Yeah. <laughs> Remember the last Mother's Day we had together? Yeah. Like, <laughs> just really like digging into the archives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um and you know what sandoval kind of had a point that it is kind of not fair to have your mother second you because nobody's going to attack her totally. yeah that, that, for that, sure that's true and i did feel bad for raquel because because katie you just fucking went off and it was just yeah. a, a dynamic where like nobody was going to take her side because the only person who was well positioned to take her side was schwartz who was hoping that his t-shirt blends in with the potted plants around her. <laughs> 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 but uh but yeah katie's got a ton of uh of anger and frustration obviously that i think draws off that whole long failed relationship Mm -hmm. uh i think she was way out of line to express it that that uh uh, violently against raquel and call her a cunt and shit yeah Uh, yeah. i think i think she went way too far but uh, i i think that's coming from a real place where she needed to 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 vent some way somehow yeah yeah and i i I love the kind of the misread of the situation when katie storms out of the back with schwartz to kind of like talk things out one-on-one and like this is a chance for this situation to de-escalate and Uh raquel whether it's like (laughs) by her own choice or like by producer motivation uh comes out into the back alley and is like immediately just like making things worse by being there yeah (laughs) yeah well i wonder how much of like now in retrospect how much of raquel's insertion of herself into this dynamic is to deflect from the reality of her and and sandoval you know what i mean like why does she feel compelled to blow this because how how do you not know that this is going to make things worse, especially going into the back alley at that point, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like this was like a seasoned producer being like, Oh no, you should go. And like, I think yeah. you can make things up or like whatever, <laughs> like you've, yeah. you've had such a, uh, like an arc where you've grown into this person that is able to talk things out because a few episodes ago, we saw her kind of sort of make up with Lala and find some like common ground. I feel like, uh, seasoned like story producer or a handler would be like oh no you can do a similar thing with katie right now yeah yeah and and i think raquel uh despite not appearing to be the most uh, courageous person on the cast has been surprisingly game about going into situations that are going to turn out poorly for her at the suggestion of others a great example of that is when like sheeta suggests that she that she goes and tells katie and christina kelly at the at the wedding that they're not allowed in like the special reserved pool Yeah. <laughs> and then just obviously just gets chewed out for it and then later she just like oh, i didn't think you would actually do it <laughs> like, i just kind of said that as a joke <laughs> um another thing that i really loved about this scene was the fact that we got a return to the the alley behind sir which is such an iconic location that mm. we haven't seen in a few seasons but it's such an iconic uh location for vanderpump rules 
Um, it felt to me when I saw this go there, I was like, oh, this was initially not just intended as like a season finale. I, it felt like a series finale that they were like, okay, this is like the bookend that we need to kind of close things off if this will, if this show is not going to get renewed because Vanderpump Rules prior to this season was kind of on life support. So mm. to see this bookend with a, um, with a location that longstanding fans are very attached to seeing lots of drama go down and lots of uh, heartfelt discussion and so much history there within the context of the mm. show was going to be a was black really, someday. Yeah. And um, I also loved how it was cut because, you know, right after Katie kind of like blows up in the Sir Alley, she marches back into the door, back into Sir Vanderpump rules is back. And the next shot that we get is like of a door inside Sir. And you completely expect Katie to come in, but we get Lisa's birthday cake and people. Singing happy <laughs> <birthday>. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Also kind of furthering your theory that this was intended to be potentially a, a, a series finale is just like how kind of like long winded, Lisa and stirring summing <laughs> yeah. up speech was yeah. where she's yeah. like oh no you didn't you're not saying it's my birthday oh no it's not about me don't point the cameras at me anyways here's my speech <laughs> like just like, <laughs> launches into a fucking Kurt Russell miracle style speech yeah and also she was like so concerned about Schwartz also being mm, there yeah. like definitely was like okay we're wrapping this show up this yeah. is the last yeah. Where's Schwartz? I need him there. And Katie's yeah. like, no, you don't. I'm here. I'm here. And yeah. just like fucking stands up and hovers over her. Like, <laughs> like pick me, teacher. <laughs> uh, did you guys have any other notes about Vanderpump Rules that you wanted to go over? Uh, no, I, I mean, I liked Lala's, uh, um, dis- or at least assertion that she would have her next kid alone. I thought it was like, cool. You know, at that point, if you want to do it, go for it. You know, that's, I thought that was great. Yeah. I think, uh, this is kind of an interesting, you know, uh, open way for Lala to kind of open up the, her story for mm-hmm. whatever was going to come after Vanderpump rules. If, it was going to end. Um, I thought, yeah, that was that was interesting to me as well. Also, shout out to Lala's uh, bejeweled hamburger purse. Yeah. <laughs> very Lala, like very like glittery and extra, and also just corny as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we've got lots to talk about still. Let's move on to Real Housewives of New Jersey. Uh, Rory, um, what were your highlights from Real Housewives of New Jersey? Oh, man. The, I mean, the biggest highlight for me was the first scene with oh, yeah. um, <laughs> the twins, the old twins. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, going, like just this as an introduction to what this show is, I was like, this show is full of characters. Yeah. If this is the way this starts, holy shit, is it exaggerated, you yeah. know? Unbelievable. Cassie like as, and Mazzy. Wow. Oh, yeah. I loved it. As, as like structured as Vanderpump felt, especially with Lisa's uh, speech at the end, it felt like scripted television almost. Yeah. This felt like, okay, we are watching some weirdos being yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I really love this. I think like uh, Dylan... I think it was Dylan that described Jen Fessler as having like Jerry Lewis 
energy <laughs> well her mom and like her twin have sherry lewis energy yeah. like i was waiting for lamb chops and ashtati to come up sing the song that never ends <laughs> jen Pessler's family is just like a woody allen movie apparently. He's, he's fucking uh fucking thing number one and thing number two who come out here wearing their white t-shirts and sideshow bob hair and just start fast talking with their jewish voices like long yeah. island accents or whatever it was and jen Fessler are being like they were best friends with Barbara Streisand. Yeah, it's, oh my god, what a what a moment! <laughs> I love that. Like they had a, a name to drop too. Like yeah. you know, Jen Fessler yeah. had James Gandolfini. I slept with James Gandolfini, and her, yeah. her, her her mom was best friends with Barbara Streisand. <laughs> oh, my god. Uh, <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that was the standout for me. And then just, I mean, just, I could not keep track of who's, who was mad at their brother and not. It was just <laughs> like a cavalcade of terrible brothers. <laughs> uh, Dylan, what, what were your highlights? Um, yeah, it, you can't top that first seat, of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do like the, uh, the, the Frank and Dolores extended family dinner. Um, <laughs> Brittany asking, uh, asking <laughs> Polly, when you came here, did you speak English? Oh, God. I mean, I mean, in her defense, maybe she was like confused by his Chinese and Arabic forearm tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was a funny moment yeah, it was great <laughs> um but um mostly the thing that i loved the most was was dark louis rising i'm glad oh, that, oh yeah <laughs> I, I i said last last episode i was stoked to see louis get jokerified and we oh we get it we fucking yeah. get it it's so great the way he just gets so so worked up uh, so fast talking, just rattling out those phrases. Like I'm pulling you out of the snake pit. <laughs> <laughs> Believe that I'm in the snake pit. Cause yeah. eventually like they all get bit. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> this is, oh my God. Like, it's, like I don't like to say this things, this kind of thing too often, but the guy's coked up, right? Like he's, coked <laughs> oh, up, that's yeah. it. he's, For he's sure. talking like taxi driver era Scorsese. Like he, oh, is, totally. he is coked to the gills. This dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, but, but I'm here for it. I'm here for him bringing the intense negative energy after several episodes of trying his best to bring positive reconciliatory energy. Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm so here for dark Louie going off. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the, the things he's saying are still like, to, you can tell to him, they sound, positive but it's yeah. so dark <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he calls joe an animal trash he even calls him the r word uh which we uh i mean rat i don't like that's for <laughs> italians you know that's that's the one that's gonna cut the most <laughs> but that was a great scene so that's yeah. uh yeah, say what you will about Louis. He's got great style, according to Teresa. We've only seen this guy wearing like cut off sleeves <laughs> through the whole season. Yeah, it's like dress oh, jeans. Oh, chef's yeah. kiss. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like spiked uh, gelled hair and just yeah. like, <laughs> oh man, like tribal tattoo t shirts. And, uh, but yeah, for he's putting out like a, he's putting out a vest there. And, and Teresa's like, oh my God. <laughs> I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well. 
Yeah, I uh, you mentioned the uh, the dinner between uh, Dolores and Frank and and their partners. I thought that this was uh, a really good kind of conclusion to what felt like n- maybe not the most um, dynamic storyline or didn't have the highest like peaks and valleys, but it did seem like an honest, like personal, emotional mm-hmm. thing that Frank was was dealing with uh specifically frank i think like this was in the back of dolores's mind i don't think she was really caring but i think we have seen frank kind of explore like why he's so upset about this dynamic changing or why he's so upset about this this situation in in general and um it was nice to see him kind of come to a place where he's like okay i can see how to have like an enjoyable dynamic going forward where I still, you know, where I still have my best friend, Dolores, like Mm -hmm. Dolores is his, his best friend. Like, I think that that is the, Mm -hmm. the, the, his issue. It's not that he, you know, wants to, you know, get back together with Dolores. I don't think he's ever really given off that vibe, but he feels like he's losing his best friend and to see them kind of come together as a family and have this like positive milestone that they can all share. um, Mm -hmm. And he can see a way forward was, was really nice to see. Yeah. Frankie Mm -hmm. seems so relieved that it goes so well. It's kind of sweet. Yeah, Yeah, it is. And you can see that the, the kids like, like he sees the happiness in his kids at that point. And that means almost as much to him as whether he's happy in that situation or not. Yeah, for sure. And I think like some of this was the fact that, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, needed to give a little, like Mm -hmm. uh, he needed to just be around Frank. And so that, Frank was somewhat comforted in the fact that, you know, this family dynamic that they have is not going away. So yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see. And I also loved how, you know, when they're talking about having some sort of event, Paulie suggests having an Irish party. Like this is just like, (laughs) so like core to him, which I I like, like I kind of get, but uh, just so funny that he's really pushing this Irish thing. And, you know, Dolores is bringing a cast trip to Ireland and that's not enough like shamrock for us. We need to have an (laughs) Irish party. Nobody's messing (laughs) with her pot of gold. (laughs) (laughs) And the, just because you know, I love the, the the dude's energy in this show. So I just really like when when Frankie does like a a video call uh, with Joe Gorga, and and the first thing out of Frankie's mouth is, "Do I really gotta see your face?" And then Joe responds with Hollywood, and just like that's, just, just that little exchange is just that perfect kind of dudes being guys uh, vibe that I yeah. love from these dudes. Yeah, and I think that's the kind of like honest like familiarity that we see with within this group that we don't get in other series like that seems like people that have a very like established way of like uh bantering back and forth with each other it doesn't feel constructed in the way that a lot of new relationships that you see on reality tv are and especially with you know uh husbands or partners of of housewives Mm -hmm. you you don't see that same dynamic Mm. Cool. Well, um, let's talk about Real Housewives of Atlanta premiering this this week. Um, I thought this was a 
pretty decent premiere. It wasn't as engaging as I was hoping to be in the beginning, but mm-hmm. I think the end was was uh, heating up a little bit. Um, and this is coming off of what I consider to be kind of a mediocre season from, uh, or the past season of Real Housewives of Atlanta was kind of mediocre. So um, I'm hopeful that it kind of returns to its glory because I think it is one of the, the shining stars of the, the housewife universe. But uh, Rory, I'm curious what your take was to the introduction of the housewives of this season. My, I mean, the honestly, the big thing that stood out to me was the production value on this show compared to some of the other ones. It looked like, and I know some of it is the staged intros to the characters, but it seemed like so cinematic. Even the the you know documentary scenes of of capturing life or whatever were were really aesthetically pleasing compared to especially real housewives of new jersey is like how i imagine reality tv looks right like my memory yeah. of what reality tv is whereas atlanta felt very very slick um from an aesthetic standpoint um which was surprising to me oh yeah absolutely and um especially with like everything that was shot at the party i'm mm-hmm. i'm a sucker for a really visually interesting party scene on yeah. on housewives i think we've gotten them with like some of gertie's parties on real housewives of miami but since we started this podcast this was um i think one of the first parties that really stood out to me as being a really visually interesting in terms of how it was staged, but also how it was shot and, and put together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely uh, put, uh, they definitely have a lot of fun uh, with, with production in the show and with editing too. They put, they throw in a ton of editing tricks. They seem oh, to have, totally. uh, yeah. have some very, uh, very dynamic uh, people working on this show. Yeah. I also loved how often we got clips of, um the the last season party from Sonia the that she put with like just like dollars real dollar store kids party energy <laughs> <laughs> and obviously she's like compensating for this by spending a hundred thousand dollars throwing this this party yeah <laughs> like that figure when she throws out a hundred thousand dollars I'm like whoa <laughs> so so over the top for a party <laughs> Uh, the other thing that really stood out to me on this one was the the dudes, like the men, the husbands, partners, whatever, and how kind of removed they seemed, especially compared to New Jersey. Like you said, New Jersey, they've got their dynamic. It's the dude dynamic, but they're there. They're present in the storyline. In, in Atlanta, they seem to be um, almost props for story, not really engaged in the story in the same way, mm-hmm. which... Um, <laughs> which makes Martell's dynamic stand out all the more where he's oh, yeah. just like, I'm here too. I here I am. You know, he's <laughs> always right there. And he's so he's so like speaks to that uh performer as author in that sense where he is aware that he's like, I'm on TV, I'm I'm getting my screen time on this show as well. This is Martell's brand. I'm furthering my brand here. Let me be on camera at all times. Yeah, it's interesting because, like you said, I think there's a certain reluctance that is very common among, like, husbands of Real Housewives to be participatory in the show, let alone mm-hmm. the drama. Um, but, yeah, Martel is here to further his his brand. And, you know, I think 
I'm guessing that we are going to get some further questions about his motivation in, mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of being with Cherie. Um, totally. As being an opportunist, as Candy mm-hmm. has kind of like called out. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was curious when, like, the him sliding into was it Sonya's DMs? Uh, I think it was Kenya's DMs. Kenya, Kenya's mm-hmm. DMs, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm curious when that happened. Was he just like sliding into Atlanta DMs? Everybody <laughs> like, on the like, show see exactly. who bites. He's just like, yeah, just for open sure. for a bite. I gotta get yeah. on this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. After you've been on Love and Marriage Huntsville for six seasons, it's time to upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> the Oprah Winfrey Network. Yeah. <laughs> Craig, do we have a correspondent at uh, OWN Outsider? We can, we can patch in to give us some thoughts about Martel from. Love and marriage, Huntsville. <laughs> but no, I'm really interested to see where we go with him because he is like uh, he does seem like a, a big personality that everybody's raising their eyebrows at. So uh, that was probably the thing that um, that promises the most for me going forward is is this Martel guy and like let's see what he does. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another new addition this this season to the uh, the, the dynamic was Courtney, uh, the <laughs> Cherie's like friend of, with oh, very chaotic and as Candy described like crazy energy. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that's one way to introduce yourself to a show, like just like a warbling scream as soon as you enter the door. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh my god, I, I got I'm not gonna lie, she got in my nerves right off the bat. Like oh, we just, yeah. it, we're just introduced to her, we hear her before we see her going. Like hey, <laughs> and then she does that like a couple more times. Oh, that was like, I mean, like it, it sounded like some kind of bird call, and I, I'm a bird guy. Look, I got some birds behind me. I got some autobot prints. So, I mean, I did, I did feel like I had to like get out my bird call identification app and, uh, and, and, and play that into it just to see if it got any hits. Um, it, it, it didn't really. It's it's geographically specific. They suggested possibly a Canada goose, but they were the low level of confidence. But my bird app does recognize uh, human noises, and it, it did not suggest that as a possibility. So I, think, I, think, I think this bird might be new to science, but uh, definitely, definitely intrigued by its uh, aggressive bobbing behavior. <laughs> I, I love the like this this was a scene where Courtney was introduced that like really screamed a very like constructed situation mm-hmm. because we had it screamed of something. <laughs> <laughs> we had Sonia and Cherie like working out and then Courtney arrives and immediately they're having like some sort of sparkling wine, like the, yeah. just not what you would be drinking after, after a workout. <laughs> it was clearly just like, Oh yeah, let's like, we need some sort of pretense. Like, Oh yeah. Sonia's a, a track star. So, you know, sure. He could be working out and then like, okay, now let's bust out the sparkling wine. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, like uh, it also constructed around showing off uh, Cherie's butt this whole episode where it's like, was she doing mad squats in the off season? She seems very <laughs> focused on like, here it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dylan, what were your highlights? Um, yeah, I'm mostly just interested to see what happens uh, going forward. Um, interesting. We didn't we didn't even see Drew at all. I don't think. Uh, no that was very interesting we saw ralph though yeah we saw her husband who we know in the off season they end up getting a divorce so uh curious what that was all about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so so we'll see where it goes. I did like I you already referenced it off the top, but I like how Candy has the line about uh about uh, Sheree and Martel saying last year she was with, with the Mr. Community Service and this year she's with Mr. Community Property. Yeah, a very good line. And then, you know, you know uh, Candy, uh, Candy's a, a, a vet enough she knows to kind of like play it cool knowing that she busted out a good line. And then like shortly after we have Kenya busting out the uh, not exactly on the same level line. <laughs> what? It's like she's in Watch Me Date Dumb Dudes and then just like explodes into laughter like she just said the funniest <laughs> thing in the world uh, so. i love that line i thought that was really funny. <laughs> okay, I, I, well i love the visual that was associated with it where they like throw up the like watch me date these dumb dudes of atlanta <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was funny yeah, it was just for for me, it was just a funny like contrast between yeah, Candy and Kenya. <laughs> the, the way, the way you could see the graphic designers at work in this episode. There were oh, a, yeah. few, a few of those edit moments that were like, okay, nice. I see the hand at play here. Yeah, yeah I love the, the name, uh, name key change on Sonia's uh, uh, brother-in-law from like brother-in-law to assistant. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I can't I I can't imagine living the way Sonya does. That sounds terrible to oh, me. God. To have all your extended family and then they're also your coworkers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my god, that sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> That's the succession storyline yeah. for, <laughs> for Real Housewives of Atlanta right there. <laughs> but yeah, it was um, fun, but not not too much to chew on yet, I don't think. We'll uh, we'll have to see where it goes. Yeah, uh, another thing that I thought was uh, kind of compelling was seeing Marlo's uh, personal story fleshing out a little bit more in terms of her relationship with her nephews and mm-hmm. being the caretaker for the nephews. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, this was a sweet scene with the the life coach. Um, Marlo has been a long time friend of, and last season she finally got upgraded to full housewife, and we are starting to get her personal story. Um, and to me, it's just really nice as someone who really appreciated Marlo as a, a friend of to see her get rounded out as a character, um, because I think she's always been like very active in the group dynamics and and the drama. Um, and it just helps when you've got like a more fleshed out character to kind of root for and like mm-hmm. contextualize their position within the, the drama. So um Love seeing Marlo in her second season as a full-blown housewife. Yeah, it seemed like such a nice counterpoint to the the uh, drama of, you know, um, Courtney and whether she knows somebody seemed to be like the the real yeah. crux of that drama. Uh, it was nice to have that grounded, like, actual human relationship between Marlo and her nephews, for sure. Totally. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I really appreciate about Atlanta in general is how like um, happily they engage in the sport of housewives. Like they are all very excited about participating in the drama or being like present to watch the drama. Whereas I think in something like New Jersey, it's a bit of a contrast. There's like, um, you know, it's not as gleeful of mm. a engaging in like a back and forth. And whereas, you know, on Atlanta, we see Marlo like just being so stoked to get front row seats to watch Candy in the boxing ring. So like, <laughs> just like looking over her shoulders, watching this, this play out. And, you know, um, it's, it's really fun to see 
this cast really embrace it and you know they're taking on the role of athletes in in, in this arena mm-hmm. yeah we're really athletic especially courtney i like i like what Gaddy's like stop bouncing at me <laughs> awesome well did you guys have anything else to discuss with regards to real housewives of atlanta uh no not no don't think so i don't think so awesome well i think that about does it for this episode thank you so much for joining us rory this has been a blast you want to let everyone know where they can find you yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you can find me somewhere at Rory Fallis. You're not going to find much. I don't. I don't do much anymore. Uh, you can find uh, my podcast, the Hunks Podcast, uh, at Hunks Comedy on uh, Instagram. All that places you'll find the podcast. Uh, yeah, that's that's your best bet. Awesome. And Dylan, how about yourself? Yeah, nothing new. Um, you can find me writing about movies on Substack, Dylan Ferguson, uh, and talking about horror movies in particular on the podcast, uh, Mind Over Splatter. Awesome. That's been Bravo Outsider. You can find us online at bravooutsider.com, on Twitter, at bravo underscore outsider, on Instagram, let me, let me, at let bravo Let me make it outsider. clear that, that I'm doing the, the Twitter, because I don't want anybody to hold Craig responsible for anything that's up there. <laughs> um, you can listen to us wherever you find podcasts and watch us on YouTube. Until next time, keep on wifing. Keep on wifing.